Take your Bibles, please, this morning to, again, to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to look, really look at the rest of that chapter this morning, actually beginning around verse number 27, and I, I do want to read for you just a portion of that section. We read in our scripture reading this morning some of it, and we want I want to read the first portion of it here as we introduce the message. Verse number 27 through verse number 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. But as you wish that others would do to you, do also, or do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, and expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Amen. The Constitution of the United States provides for a value system that the Founding Fathers deemed essential for the citizens of, it, of this country. The Founders understood that all men have certain inalienable rights guaranteed to them by God, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These indelible rights, inalienable rights, were codified in the Bill of Rights, in the first article of which states Congress, I'm quoting here, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The founders had experienced totalitarianism of European governments. Those who had given authority to in uh, government tend to assume, or, or who are given authority in government, tend to assume the right to regulate the lives of those they govern. Just kind of a natural thing. I'm, I'm over you. I'm going to make you do what I want you to do. Because I think that it's best for you, and it's because you have made me uh, a ruler over you. And even today, many politicians believe that Washington grants it's to its citizens, their freedoms. They come from Washington, not God, which also empowers 
them then to believe that they have the right to regulate those freedoms. If they gave them to you, they can take them away too. As CNN former celebrity journalist Chris Cuomo once stated, and I'm quoting him, our rights do not come from God. That is not our country. Our laws come from collective agreement and compromise. Let me interpret that for you. That's his interpretation of democracy. It is the collective agreement and compromise. But I would say no, sir. The first paragraph of, the, of our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence, the United States of America spells it out. The separate and, and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Our freedoms come from the laws of nature and nature's God. The founders clearly understood that God granted our freedoms and that it, it is the duty of government to protect them, not regulate them. However, in our modern culture, there is a growing persuasion that sides with Chris Cuomo on this issue. The majority elect representatives to establish and maintain their rights for the common good. And if my rights don't fit into the common good, then they, they must go away. Now you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with Jesus' sermon here on the plane? Well, let me explain. There's something important that has been generally unrealized, especially among those professing Christianity, and that is this. Due to the freedoms granted by the United States Constitution, persecution of Christians has been very limited. However, the content of Jesus' sermon here is based on the fourth and last benediction which he gave above in verse number 22. And therefore, on that basis, he then instructs the apostles on how they should respond to persecution. Begins by saying, love your enemies. Jesus knows they will suffer persecution. How should they respond to that persecution? But I think he's also in the same, at the same time, and if you'll notice it says, but, in verse 27, but I say to you who hear, He knows that the enemy is in the audience and they're listening to the scribes and the Pharisees. So he's talking to them as well. And what he's doing is he's provoking them. While he's instructing the disciples on how to respond to persecution, he's provoking the scribes and the Pharisees into the very persecution that the apostles will endure. God who grants these inalienable rights 
is the same God who commissioned His church to represent the kingdom of God on earth. We operate by a different standard. As long as our country held to the, held to the principles of the word of God and believed, at least somewhat believed in the standard that we support, allowing the churches to have freedom to function and operate, even though they may not have agreed with them, with them or with each other in those, in those things, at least they understood that God has his kingdom on earth and they should respect that. And But the simple truth is the church that stands upon the word of God will endure conflict in an evil culture. They will suffer persecution. And as the culture rejects God and the principles of the scripture, more and more will agree with Cuomo. That those who stand on moral principles of scripture will face growing opposition and will not be able to defend their rights as previously guaranteed because they are not in the collective agreement. So must be compromised. And we will not compromise. So, that brings us then to my first point here, the background of kingdom values. As I stated before, this sermon is based on the 22nd verse. Jesus Christ here calls his people to represent the values of the kingdom of God in, an, in a unified body, the church. We are the people of God in this in this era, this in these last days. And the church is in a world that is populated with evil people under the control of Satan, who is the God of this world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. Indeed, we're, we're explicitly commanded, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And as such here, the founding fathers that, uh, saw the church as a separate institution outside the purview of government. This is what many do not understand. When they established the United States, they saw the kingdom as a separate entity not under the purview of the government. Period. It was under God and God alone. So they wrote, Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise. Now they understood there are differences and we should respect these differences. But uh, whatever God has established on earth, God controls, not the government. So to illustrate this truth, Many today wonder why churches are tax-exempt. You hear that all the time. Well, churches are tax-exempt. And this is a wrong understanding. Churches are not 
taxable. There's a difference. They're not taxable because they are regarded as outside of the government's jurisdiction. However, the evil one who desires to, to rule over everything wants to overrule this by teaching that churches are tax-exempt, which causes people to think that it is the government, not God, that grants this privilege to not pay taxes. So therefore, if the government wants to, it can take away that same privilege for the common good. And this would then also pertain to the rights of the free exercise of religion as well, especially when Christian convictions conflict with the majority opinion. Although this nation, as I said, has been richly blessed with a long history free of persecution, understand we are not exempt from it. We're not exempt from it. In fact, I would argue that the New Testament plainly teaches that Christians will be persecuted and how we are to live as persecuted believers on this earth in this age. That is the main function and focus of it. So we ask, will America fall to totalitarianism? I would argue that we have pretty much done so already. Sit back, fasten your seatbelt, we're in for a ride. And I'll explain that here. The Bible teaches that persecution is normal and should be expected. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you. Notice, blessed are you. You are in a divinely wonderful position. To be blessed is to be in a lovely position with God. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the what? Son of man. Paul reminded Timothy there in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. He said to him, uh, you, you remember my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in, at, Icon at uh, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Yeah, I have suffered persecution, but my Lord rescues me in them. And then he made this statement there in verse number 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you hear that? All. I've often wondered why we suffer so little persecution. Oh, sometimes from family, sometimes in the workplace, sometimes in the neighborhood, in our relations with other individuals, we find them to be hateful. 
but we're talking about when the government comes into that arena. But Paul said here, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And he continued to note why. Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We, we preach righteousness and we preach truth. And that is not acceptable in this culture. That's verse 13. And these statements were based on what Paul said in the opening of that third chapter. But understand this, that in the last days, and by the way, by the last days, he means the period from Christ's first coming to the second coming. These, the last days here will be characterized by difficult times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and so forth. Swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, isn't that the, doesn't that describe our, our culture? That's in the first five verses there of Timothy. So remember also then that believers will suffer on account of the Son of Man. As we saw there in, in verse 22 of our text. The king is really the object of Satan's hatred. Read uh, Revelation chapter 12, because that, that spells it out here. But let me just share it quickly here. Satan, uh, under the figure of the dragon, sought to destroy the man-child. Here, which is the son of man. The one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But he couldn't. Why? Because... He, this man-child was caught up to God and to his throne. And that's where he is now, seated at the Father's right hand. And he must reign then there until all his enemies have been defeated. That's Revelation 12, 5. So what did the Satan do when he couldn't get to the son? He tried to destroy the woman, which I believe is a representation of the people of God in every culture God has called a people to himself. He called a people to himself in the Old Testament, and he has a people for himself in the New Testament. The woman is the people of God. Jesus came out of Israel. So Eve represents that there in the beginning, and we have so we have Eve, and then we have uh, Sarah, who gave birth to uh, Isaac. And then Isaac shall thy seed be called. And then she, she's represented as Israel, the wife of Yahweh. And then she's il, il, illustrated in Mary, who gave birth to Jesus Christ, the virgin birth. And, that, and then she's also represented in the church. The church of Jesus Christ. So Satan can't defeat the church. He can't defeat the people of God. So what does he do? The scripture says he, go, he, goes, he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, which I believe to mean individual believers. 
If he can't get the church, he'll get you. That's the point. And it, these people are described, this offspring are described right here very clearly as believers. They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so we are in spiritual warfare. We sang about that. <laughs> We're in spiritual warfare. And so then, as a result of that, as soldiers of Jesus Christ, he instructs us, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15, verse 20. And just prior to this vision of the woman and the dragon, John wrote, and listen to this, this is in verses 10 and 11 of, that, of Revelation 12. Now, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. There's the problem. And because they came, we read here that the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God, like Job. And they have conquered him. Yeah, he's defeated, but boy, he's not acting like it. He's thrashing around like a wild man, trying to regain some power. And they conquered him. How did they do that? It says, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Now, this is the thing about persecution. You don't, we don't need to fear it. It can't harm us. It can only help us. But what if they take our lives? Graduation to glory. <laughs> huh? Wouldn't you rather be graduated to glory? Ah. So... They persevere in persecution because they love not their lives unto, even unto death. So, and that infuriates Satan even more. So here, let us then examine the principles and the values of the king which he has left for us, his servants, to follow. What is the heart of the law of God? That's the value of the kingdom. The values of the kingdom. And that's my second point here. And we see that in verses 27 to 38. Jesus opened his application with an astonishing command. Love your enemies. Your persecutors. Those who hate you and, and, and despise you. Revile you. Love them. What is the natural response of a human to negative things against him? To be angry and to retort. To get vengeance. To hate them. Even if hate is just ignoring them. Jesus said, don't ignore them. Don't have animosity toward them. Love them. You can't, I can't do that. 
Love your enemies. Do good to them who hate you. Do the right thing to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That statement simply sums up what all the law in the Old Testament required. God had people then too. He had them in the midst of the nations. And they were to be his people in, these, in this regard. Sadly, they failed God miserably by wanting to be like the nations that were round about them. Why? Because this law that God gave to them on Mount Sinai is an impossible standard for humans. It's an impossible standard for humans. And why? The reason is, and here's, this is simple, it is because we tend to love passively. What do I mean? People fall in love. They don't love, they fall in love. I don't like you because you don't love me. It's a passive thing. You see that? But the love that Jesus requires is not something that happens to people over which they have little or no control. The love Jesus requires is an active pursuit of another's good. Even if that one that we love is regarded by us as an enemy. Wow. The servant of Christ must love his enemies. He must not then, uh, and it's because he must not be able, even though he's not able to control how he feels about them, he does have control over what he does about those feelings. You see what I'm saying? You might not be able to control how you feel about those who offend you, but you definitely can control how you handle the feelings of offense. That's what Jesus is telling us. Christians need to understand that kingdom values are not built on vengeance and retaliation when they're wronged. Here's, here is what Jesus is telling us. We can and ought to pray for vengeance. We can and ought to pray for, for uh, righteousness and justice on our enemies. Why? Because that's in the scriptures. Indeed, the Psalms are filled with examples of this. I'm going to give you an example here. It's Psalm 94, verses 1 to 3. O, o God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay the proud for what they deserve. That's a psalm. I would encourage you this afternoon to go home and read that whole psalm, the whole thing.
God allows injustice. Listen to me on this one. The God is allowing injustice to his people for a twofold reason that's explained right here in this psalm in verses 12 and 13. Let me read those verses. And here we have, blessed is the man. Here's, here's another one. You're in a favorable condition with God if you're blessed. Blessed is the man whom you discipline. See, now the psalmist has already prayed for vengeance upon his enemies. And now he's explaining why he's not to take vengeance, but is to allow God to do that because God has allowed his enemy to bring this problem to him for discipline. Discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Notice, out of your law. What does the law say? Love your enemies. So my enemy has offended me. And my response to my enemy is, why did you do that? But wait a minute. I need to control my feelings on the matter. And so what do I do? I turn it back to God. And I say, Lord, loving him is impossible without your spirit. But I want to pray, God, that his offense will be dealt with. Not by me, but by you. And I'm going to trust you to do it. So I'm going to release my feelings of enmity and hostility. And I'm going to look and see... Does he need something? Can I help him? Yeah. Whom you teach out of your law. Love your enemies. And notice, to give him rest from the days of trouble. That's endurance. He'll be able to experience this animosity and rest in the Lord in it. He's not going to be troubled by it. Because God's going to keep him and preserve him. Even in that. Not to escape it. He's not going to escape it. But he's going to suffer it. Understanding that God is going to deal with it. Notice, until a pit is dug for the wicked. Let me read that again. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Wow. But I think there's a third principle that springs from the second. And that is this, the Lord will use the trial of persecution to prepare his church to be his bride just prior to his return. Just like God used the, the situation there in, in Israel to prepare for the Lord Jesus Christ's first coming, he's going to use persecution in the lives of his people in this in this last age to prepare them for his second coming there in revelation chapter 19 verse 7 we read the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready 
I really do not believe the bride is ready yet for the bridegroom. But how will that how will that be possible? Because God is is going to discipline his church. How is he going to discipline his church? He's going to do so through persecution. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But at, but at the same time, he promises. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 is a great promise. Because you have kept, that is, believed and obeyed, not, not by our effort, but by the work of the Spirit of God in us, we have believed and obeyed, we have kept his word about patient endurance, that is, persecution. How to respond in persecution? Patient endurance. I will keep you. Because you kept my word, I will keep you. That is, his, his people that keep you from what? His wrathful vengeance in the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. To try those who dwell on the earth. See, there's a twofold judgment. The, the judgment comes, the, the judgment first of all is to bring his wrath and his vengeance on the whole world of the wicked. But at the same time, believers suffer it, but it, they suffer it for a different reason, a different purpose, that is to discipline them in holiness. So then Jesus says, because of that, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You understand what I'm doing? Hold on. I'm coming soon. Don't get discouraged. Don't fall away. And the psalm here that we were sharing, there are 94, closes with a glorious promise. In, in verses 14 and 15, it says, For the Lord, and I love this, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. Ah! And all the upright in heart will follow it. Justice. In other words, Jesus told his apostles that when they are persecuted, they are to seek the good of their persecutors. This is what Paul explained there also in Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 19 to 21. Now think about that. Somebody hates you because of the position you take on Christ, on righteousness, on the truth of the word of God. God may bring something into their lives that where they have a need and you turn to them and you say, you know, let me take care of that for you. What? 
That doesn't make any sense to the world. They can't, they, they can't put that. That's something that just doesn't reason. When you love them and you're kind to them and you're good to them, in, in, when they have done what they've done to get you, I'm going to get you. Uh, can I help you? <laughs> what? <laughs> Think about that. Peter also was there that day. He heard Christ teaching this very thing. And he writes there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay e evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. You don't get up in their face and scream and holler and shake your fist. No, no. You smile. Hey, brother. Bless, bless you. Is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you? I see you're all you're upset. Is there a problem going on in your life I could do something for? Huh? Yeah. Don't repay evil for evil. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. To this you were called. Oh, that's my job. Wow. That's, that runs totally against nature. It runs totally against our, even na our nature. And so God has a day coming. We read there in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 18. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. That is, for the cause of his people. The resurrection of Jesus was the first step in this process of vindication. Those in power hated him and judged him worthy of death. God judged him worthy of life. They killed him. God raised him. And God, by this, God vindicated him. And he has also promised to vindicate his followers. So vengeance is legitimate. God's going to do it. But it's, and only he who is the righteous judge of all the earth. And But in doing so to those who persecute Christ's servants or harm them or wrong them in any way, God's way is to bring wrath to them. But at the same time, discipline his people to exercise restraint against their own wicked tendencies. Doing good then also may restrain the, the enemy's wickedness in turn. They persecute you, you treat them right, they're going to go home scratching their heads saying, what is going on? Can't figure that one out. I better leave him alone. <laughs> I better leave him alone. Then Jesus gave the reason for this impossible command. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Now, that's how it's translated in our Bibles. Uh, the ESV here has, the, has benefit. The King James Version has thanks. What thanks is that to you? Uh, or even if sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Let me let me tell you that word that's translated there benefit is the word charis. You know what charis is? Grace. 
grace. Our response to grace is thanks. But here's what Jesus is saying. I think both these translations miss the mark here because Jesus here is explaining that when one does what comes naturally, loving those who love you, one does not evidence the enabling grace of God. If you're only kind to those who are kind to you, you're not evidencing the enabling grace of God. But when you do kind, uh, kindness to those who hate you, you that's, that runs totally against nature. So what you're doing is you're, you're showing how grace has enabled you to do what is humanly impossible. In other words, loving your friends does not require a changed heart. Loving your enemies does. And when one loves his enemies, he is evidencing the grace of God in him. So I would translate the verse like this. If you love those who love you, how is grace evidenced in you by this? How is grace evidenced in you by this? So verses 37 and then 38 apply to the previous admonition and promise the reward. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Uh, forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. You say, oh, I'd like to give to them, but that's going to cost me. God said, do it anyway and I'll take care of you. And how does he give good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over? <laughs> will be put into your lap. For with what measure you use, it will be measured back. It's the broadcasting of seed. You broadcast a little seed, you're not going to get much of a crop. But if you broadcast much seed, you're going to get a big crop. You see that? So then moving on here, note in verse 27 where Jesus said, I say to those who hear, and I pointed out earlier, this clearly represents the Pharisees who were listening in on the teaching. Thus in verse 39 and following, and fo and following verses, there Jesus poses hard questions to supposed kingdom leaders. You guys claim to be teachers of the law? You're hypocrites. You're going around leading the blind? You're blind. How do you think they were reacting to that? <laughs> They're sitting there gritting their teeth infuriated. He should be scratching their heads and praising them and calling them out and telling what wonderful guys these are. But he is calling them out, but not for, their, for, for praise and adoration. So he posed a parable about blind guides leading blind men. What happens to them? Inevitably, they fall into the pit. Both fall into the pit. So you disciples of these Pharisees, better listen up, because it's not going to go well for you. A disciple will become like his teacher. So how important is it to rely upon the Holy Spirit to guide as truth is given to Christ's followers? 
Much prayer and careful study is required to equip the saints to be effective. Then, there is also a warning against hypocritical correctors, verses 41 and 42. Why do you seek see the speck in your brother's eyes? That was another problem they had. But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. He's not talking to his disciples there. He's talking about talking to these Pharisees. You're hypocrites. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now that tells us it is our job to, to help our brothers when they have specks in their eyes. Let me help you. But first of all, make sure, and, and, and I think Paul is another one who uh, clearly gives us advice. Brothers, in uh, Galatians chapter 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, just let, let him go. No, 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 Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore him. That's the necessary goal. And restoration is to be sought. And how? In a spirit of gentleness, loving your enemies. Watch, so, but be careful, keep a watch on yourself. You may have splinters in your own eye. Get them out first. Keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. There's the law. That's the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Love each other. Help each other. Look out for each other's needs. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each test his own work. And then he'll have reason to boast. In himself alone, not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Jesus then gave an observable truth that reveals the true condition of the heart. Good trees bear, don't bear bad fruit. Bad trees don't bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not picked off of bramble bushes. A good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. And it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So the question is, what kind of fruit are you bearing? And lastly, Jesus asked an appropriate question of, for disobedient servants. Why do you call me Lord? Lord, and do not what I tell you. How many there are who insist that Jesus is the Lord of their lives, but their lives are lived in pursuit of their own ends, not his. There's a question here that Jesus addressed in greater length than the Sermon on the Mount there in chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's the qualifier. It's not your desire. It's whether you do the will of God. Enabled by the Holy Spirit and by the truth of Scripture. 
On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We have a lot of people who claim to be prophets today. I wonder what they're going to say to Jesus in that day. We prophesied in your name. Or this could be just preaching. Preaching the truth. Anyone who declares the truth of the word of God is, a pro is prophesying. Cat or cast out devils in your name. Or and do many mighty works in your name. That is miracles. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The term that's translated lawlessness here, anomia in the Greek, is, a con is the condition of iniquity. It's so the King James translated their iniquity. A person is committing iniquity when he, in a real sense, becomes a law to himself. His own desires are the objects of his pursuit, and he is the judge of whether or not his, those pursuits are right or not. Not God. A lot of people claim to believe Christ, but they're, that they live to themselves. And only the will of God is to be the believer's objective standard. And Judgment Day is going to reveal that truth. I think there's going to be an awful lot of people who said, I accepted Jesus as my Savior back when I was in Bible school, or I was in Sunday school, or I was at Bible camp, or I was in, at my mother's knee. And Jesus is going to say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. But, 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 but. Yeah. So in conclusion, Jesus closed the sermon by addressing the proper foundation for the kingdom citizens to build on. And here, here it is. Listen. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not, not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Are you building your life on the right foundation? Beware. When persecution comes, many will be tempted to compromise for the sake of self-preservation. They will believe that they are preserving their life but they will be revealing only sandy, a sandy foundation that will not assure them in the storm. The rock, Jesus Christ, and him alone will assure his own that they can withstand when Satan's storms arise against them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your will, for your truth, for your word. Thank you for this, this instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we heed it. May we think about it. May we pray over it. May the Spirit of God lead us into understanding it. And then, then may we make it the foundation of our lives that we may stand in the storm of, of Satan's revenge. 
And we'll praise you and thank you for what you will do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.